you know, and the radio programs are, are completely filled with all of the talk about Easter. You know, it's interesting to me that the, uh, the science has, has told our children in our universities now for some years that, well, you know, science and religion are two different things because science deals with the rational. And then here we have, on the other side, we have uh, religion, which has to do with faith. Well, what they're saying then is if, if science has to do with rational things, then what is religion? Well, it's the underlying current there is that is irrational. But there could be nothing further from the truth. And yet we still have brethren and people that walk around sometimes talking about their faith as if it is something that is outside the realm of possibility of the rational. I will tell you that your faith is built on something that is very rational and that there are three things. The reason we're here is because one, there was a historical event, A or B, it either happened or it did not. That's not, that has nothing to do with faith. It has nothing to do with it. It's just an, it's a historical event. We either hit the shores of Iwo Jima or we did not. We either invaded Okinawa or we did not. It either occurred or we did not. That tomb was either empty or it is not. Jesus lived, walked, died on this earth, and he got put in the tomb, and then the tomb was empty or it was not. It's a historical event. You know, Buddha won't tell you that. Buddha will say, you know what, I'm going to be long gone, but my teachings will live on. Muhammad will say, I'm going to be long gone. But like any other despot, you just followed some of this stuff that I've had. But Christianity is different because it says it was based on a historical event. You investigate the fact. You can be like Flu. You can be like uh, all of these other atheists throughout the years or Edward O. Wilson. You could fail to investigate or you could want more. But there were witnesses and you could cross-examine them through the historical record. And then you can say, well, you know what, that's... Uh, <laughs> Those are witnesses that wrote the Bible. What do you expect them to say? Well, you know, there's a whole lot of external evidences as well about this historical fact. One of them we know is Josephus. And every time he mentions Jesus, people say, well, you know, the Roman Catholic Church came up later and they, they inserted that in there. Don't you guys know that? They changed Josephus. They're, he wasn't writing about Jesus. That's been put in there later. Okay, well, we'll give him that. Alexander Campbell, when he wrote his evidences on Christianity, said, you know what? You're right. Let's just blow off that all about what Josephus said about Christ. But what did he say otherwise about the brother of Jesus, James? He tells us something about James that all of you probably don't even, well, most of you probably don't even know. And that is there, there was a man named James. He was the brother of the man that they called Christ. He was called in front of a man named Ananus. Ananus was the son of Annas. And after Caiaphas was booted out of the high priesthood, they brought in another Sadducee. And his was, he was the son of that, that grand poobah, that Annas, the high priest. Because, you know, Annas was, was uh, dethroned. And that's why he, he really had all the political power. That's why he went to Annas and it called him the high priest. And then they went to Caiaphas because the Jews recognized Annas as the high priest. The Caesar in Rome recognized Caiaphas as the high priest. That's why your Bible is true. But you don't know that unless you go outside the Bible. When you go outside the Bible, there's a historian named Josephus. He said there was a man named James. He was the brother of the one that they called Christ. He must have been forefront in this movement, whatever it was. Why? Because he was called in with others. And this, this Annas, the son of Annas, he took him and he put him in front of the Sanhedrin, called that same council together and pronounced his death sentence. And they took him out, dragged him out, and they stoned him to death. Now, Josephus could care less if you believe that or not. And he's certainly not trying to back the veracity of the biblical record because it's not in there. That part's not in your Bible. 
But what did he just verify? There was a man named James. There's a man named Jesus that called Christ. They were brothers. That James was somehow forefront in in this movement. What do the gospel writers tell you about James? He mocked him. He mocked his brother. Once you go up, hey, you gonna go, you're going to be in secret? You call yourself a prophet? Go up to the Passover. Aren't you going to go up there? Wasn't James part of that? Yes, he was. And then what happened? Something happened. When we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said everything changed. What had changed? He had appeared to the apostles. He appeared to 500. And then he appeared to a man named James. Could you imagine that meeting? Can you only imagine the meeting of his brother, his flesh and brother he grew up with, who he had just been mocked by, and, and James was not a believer. But something happens to James. And now he is in the forefront of the church. In fact, unlike the Catholics believe in Acts chapter 15, by that time, James is, is a pillar. It's not Cephas. When he comes back, Paul, he starts talking in front of the the Jews there and the apostles, who's he speak to? Well, Cephas has his say, but who's, who in the end says the last word? It's James. Later on, he's mentioned again by Paul in Galatians. He said he's a pillar of the church. All of these things are verified. These things have witnesses. The second part of that is not only the historicity of the New Testament, but it's rational. Now, it doesn't mean everybody has to believe it. You don't believe every rational possibility that's out there, but that's not what rational means. Rational means that there's a God in heaven created this earth. Man rebelled him against the garden. You would think if God put his hand somewhere into history to intervene in the events of men, wouldn't he have then tried to do something to bring us back to him? And if he did so, would he have not told us? And if he told us, would it be something that you and I would make up like 70 virgins in heaven? That sounds very fleshly to me. But no, there are things we don't understand. We, have, we would not have written it that way. We keep scratching our head every time we come up with something because we wouldn't have written it that way because it's not by the hand of man. But it's very rational that the God of heaven, the creator of man, would try to bring man, his child, back to him in such a way that his son would die on the cross. And that those people change their lives and turn the world upside down within about two decades. When they were... You know, when John ran and saw the empty tomb, you know what he said at first? He said, he saw and believed. First to believe on the evidence, right? But what he said, he said, what he, he says, we still didn't even understand. We didn't understand that Jesus was to have to re- resurrect it on the third day. And yet that's what happened and the world changed. Three, it's empirical. It's empirical because you can test the veracity of the scriptures. You could ask somebody like a Ramsey that went in back in history and said, I'm going back on some archaeological digs. I'm going to put this thing nonsense once, once and for all. And he comes out being what? A believer. He says, all I could do is verify every fact I read in the book of Acts. He says, Luke is one of the greatest historians of our time in the, in, in the world just because everything was so detailed. It's empirical. You can go back and investigate for yourself. The eyewitness accounts. Why in the world would those men standing there in Jerusalem... Why didn't they flee off into Syria or go into Asia and come out of, the, come out of some, some dark little town there and say, oh, uh, you know what, guess what, right over here in Jerusalem, this is what happened years ago and, and we saw his body and we had these visions. That's not what happened, is it? They went right back into the very men and in front of the people that were yelling, crucify him. Same people they fled from. They all fled from the cross. Who was at the foot of the cross? A bunch of women. 
right? Backbone of the church. It's always been that way, ladies. It's always been that way. But those men fled. But then something happened. They changed their mind. Why? Well, they didn't do anything for 50 days, but after that, they turned the world upside down. It's empirical. You can test that. They started that movement in Jerusalem, the very, the very city and the temple where Jesus was dragged off and crucified. That's empirical. That's why we're here. When we talk about the veracity of the scriptures, we are talking about something that is not a gut feeling. We are not talking about stories and mysticism. We're not talking about better felt than told. We're not talking about a yearning or a burning in the heart. Or we're not talking about these things. God has never had you to rely your faith on those types of feelings. But it is always verifiable. It is truth. And that's what we're going to find out. Even when we read about the spiritual, like the Holy Spirit, who we don't understand. We don't understand the Godhead. But we're never having to rely on mysticism and superstition. Now, some people do. The religious world is full of it. We talk like that sometimes ourselves. Now, I have gone over John 14, 15, 16, but John had mentioned it again to so have some of you about how quickly we went through that. And some of you had never heard some of those things before. But because we're here, we have this opportunity, we'll kind of we will pick up maybe not quite where we left off, but we'll start again and we'll start looking at these things. And then we will see where we have come. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to play a little trick with your little game. And that way we can really exercise our minds and find out what is it that we really think we understand about the Holy Spirit, his leading and his guiding today. And I'm going to give you some statements like this here. And in your mind, I want you to think, I wonder who said that. Of course, I'll tell you that. And then also whether or not it's true, whether you agree. In conviction and conversion, the Holy Spirit exercises a power or influence distinct from and in addition to the written word. I've heard that my whole life, but it's put down very succinctly here. We'll get back to that. Here's another statement from a different time. In conversion of alien sinners, we're talking about regeneration, right? The Holy Spirit operates directly upon them as well as through the word of God. True or false? Who do you think said that? We'll find out. In the work of conversion and regeneration, the Holy Spirit operates immediately or directly upon the human heart. Now, you remember there was a difference. Gif was in here last time. He's not here, so I can't poke him with my sword. But I said, if I went over there and I hit Gif, I would be directly hurting him, right? I'm directly hitting him. If I take a sword and I go over to Gif and I poked him, now I'm using an instrument. It's still me poking Gif, but it's through the sword. It's an instrumentality. When he says directly, he's not talking about instrumentality. He's talking about directly. In the quickening or making alive of the sinner by the Spirit of God into new life or eternal life is independent of the written word of scriptures. Independent of the written word of scriptures, true or false. In the conversion of the sinner, the influence of the Holy Spirit is confined to the word of truth or gospel as confined in the New Testament. Wonder who said that? Would it make it harder for you if I said, what if he said only, only, the only influence of the Holy Spirit confined to the word of truth or gospel? We'll find out. Here's another statement. In conversion and sanctification, the Spirit of God operates on persons only through the truth. Only. This, this individual is brave enough to say only. 
Man is so depraved in mind and heart that he is unable without a direct enabling power of the Holy Spirit to obey the gospel of the Son of God. I should have taken that first phrase out of there. That would have made it much, much harder for you. In conviction and conversion, the Holy Spirit exercises a power or influence in addition to the written or spoken word. Now, in your mind, you said yes or no, and you thought, I wonder who said that. Well, here we are going to answer it. Well, I got my slides all mixed up. Anyway, let's go to this one right here. So I left this depraved in here. Sinner is so depraved that in conviction and conversion. I guess I did take it out of the first, uh, first paragraph there. But it's the sinner is so depraved that probably would have given it away. The Holy Spirit exercises a power or influence distinct from and in addition to the written word. Okay. This is from the Joe S. Warlick-Bogard debate of 1914. Ben Bogard is the champion of the Baptist. He was a brilliant man. He, he, he debated hundreds of times. Joe S. Warlick debated over 400 times. Joe S. Warlick denies. Ben Bogard said that statement. Joe S. Warlick denied it with all every, every cell of his body because he knew if you're going to test yourself in the polemic platform, you can no longer uh, afford to have loose words and ideas that somehow come jambled around in the, in the New Testament and no, are lo- no longer coherent. You see, these individuals cut their eye teeth on these kind of things, and so they, they would not just say loosely things that they knew that they could not defend. And so Joe S. Warlick debating over 400 times. In fact, he, met, he and Ben Bogart actually are pretty good friends because they debated each other numerous times. And when they would travel around once in a while, they, they met each other on a train once where they, they, their first debate, and he was on a train going out to California or something like that. And he says, uh, he says what are you doing? He says, oh, I'm on my way out here to do a religious debate. And he says, oh, really? He says, I am too. You know, and they got to chatting about it, and they found out they were going to the same debate, and they were going to be opposing each other. Later on, they would sleep in the same bed in people's houses, you know, as they were traveling around doing some of these debates. They didn't have each other in animosity. They didn't hold each other in contempt. They just knew that their salvation would depend upon who was right, and they took it seriously. And they debated each other. Joe S. Warlock was, a, was he who represented the Lord's church. In conversion of alien sinners, the Holy Spirit operates directly upon them as well as through the word. A direct operation plus the word. Who said that? That's Tingley said that. This is, this is a W. Curtis Porter. He represented the Lord's Church in 1947. He denied that completely. Uh, Gus Nichols moderated for Curtis. In the work of conversion and regeneration, the Holy Spirit operates immediately or directly upon the human heart. Who said it? Clark Braden and Huey. Huey was a Methodist, 1868. Braden also debated Kelly, the Mormon. It was a great debate, but Braden completely denied that. The reason I'm showing you this is just to understand that, you know, you hear things all the time now. It sounds like maybe we've been listening to the radio a lot more than we've been reading our Bibles. And so then you'll hear things either from the the pulpit or the table or the classroom and different congregations around the country as we go visiting. You just hear these ideas, but you realize people are really not grounded the way they used to be. So if you know the subject matter forwards and backwards, certain things start leaping out at you. And if it's outside the word of God, then you'd think, well, this doesn't make it right that Clark Braden denied this. But it tells you where our brethren stood for many years in the restoration movement and the post-restoration movement. And so who has changed? Well, it's not, it's not people like me. It's, it's others. 
This isn't strange doctrine you're hearing from Scott Lockwood. This is stuff that used to be just basic ground foundation. You hear something different, that individual's changed. In the quickening of the sinner by the Spirit of God into new life or eternal life is independent of the written word of scriptures. People looking for an independent influence of the Holy Spirit. Benjamin Franklin versus John Thompson, the primitive Baptist in 1873. Thompson affirmed, Benjamin Franklin denied. Benjamin Franklin was a member of the Brotherhood. Not, not the, the, the Benjamin Franklin, the later Restoration Benjamin Franklin. In the conversion of the sinner, the influence of the Holy Spirit is confined to the word of truth or gospel as confined in the New Testament. What if he would have said only? Would you have a hard time eating that one down? I, I think a lot of people have a hard time. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean confined to the New Testament, the written word only? And we'll get to the Bible here in a second, but you just look at some of these and just see. Burnett and Weaver, T.R. Burnett representing the Lord's Church, about the turn of the century. And this is about the same, operates on persons only through the word. Who would affirm such a thing? And that's the Alexander Campbell Rice debate that I talked about last time. Known as the debate of the century. Highly recommended reading. They could have never gone and brought the church to where it is and done anything for the Lord if they had not been able to deny these things with such veracity. People during the debate era, there were, there were denominational churches that shut their doors down in small towns around places like Alabama and Texas because they were driven out and they were all converted. They had preachers lined up being converted. Those buildings shut down. That's when we were the fastest movement, growing religion in America. Man is so depraved in mind and heart that he's unable without a direct enabling power. Forget about the depraved here for a second, because we don't normally talk like that. So you're recognizing a little bit of a Calvinistic flavor. But I want you to look at that direct enabling. I've heard that a lot. And that wasn't in some denomination. I've heard a lot. Enabling. We say, well, that's what the Holy Spirit's doing. Isn't it enabling us? How so, my friends? James 1.18, he said what? He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we could be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What were you brought up? By the word of truth. And then James 1 and 21, he said what? With meekness, gentleness and meekness, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. So what you're telling me is the word of God is able to save your soul, but once you're saved, you need some extra help. It's able to get the sinner out of sin, out of the dark world, out of the... The, the demonic and, the, and the, the clutch of Satan, but once the sinner is baptized, now you're a little bit debilitated, and now you need some extra help. That doesn't make sense. Seeing you have purified your souls in obedience to what? The truth. Having received not the, the corruptible seed, but the incorruptible, the word of God which liveth and abideth. The word of God, the obedience to the truth, saving your souls, 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23. These ideas would just be simply lining up with you know, Romans 1 and 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. It's the Jew first and also to the Greek. About the enabling of the Spirit in Acts 20 and 32, what did he say there? He says, Paul says, I now I commend you to God 
into the word of his grace. I know some of you don't believe it. Some of you already give me that look, but that's what Paul said. I didn't say it. He says, I'm going to commend you to God into the word of his grace, which is what? able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified. But some of you say that's not true. The word of God can't do that, Scott. I need an enabling influence of the Holy Spirit. I've heard it. That's not what Paul said. Now we should... Now you see where this debate ends up going. You know, we've always said baptism is not what separates us from the denominations. What separates us from the denominations is taking the all-sufficiency word of truth. That's it, period, dot. You either have an addition to the word or you don't believe it's all-sufficient. In fact, I'll ask you this, and I, asked, I think I asked it at the end of the slides here. I'll just be quiet. We'll get to the end of the slides here. Here's one right here. This is Harding J.B. Moody. You guys know uh, James A. Harding, father and uh, president, uh, first president there of Harding University, built after him. He debates Baptists in 1889. Absolutely denies that. In conviction and conversion, the Holy Spirit exercises a power influence in addition to the written word. Who said it? Again, Hardiman and Bogan. There's Benny Boy, the guy we already talked about. Great debater, brilliant man. But he takes on somebody that you all know, N.B. Hardiman. Hardiman denies it. Where have we stood? Only through the word, the word only. Nothing in addition to, all contained in the word, influence through the word of God only in the Christian, a regeneration, a sanctification of the life of the Christian. Alexander Campbell, J.W. McGarvey, David Lipscomb, T.W. Brents. Remember what the old time preachers used to say about the Bible? They says, you only need the Bible, but if you're going to have one other book in your pack as you're going around the country, what was it? The Gospel Plan of Salvation by T.W. Brents. You guys have that at home? It's a great book. Great books. Good read. Benjamin Franklin, N.B. Hardiman, Joe S. Warlick, debater over 400 times, J.D. Tant, another one. They used to put dynamite under the pulpit, so he would pull the dynamite out, set it over to the side, and then he'd put his six-shooter back up on the pulpit. He says, we're not going anywhere, we're just going to preach. And then he would just start, he'd start shutting those denominational Calvinist uh, churches down. C.R. Nickel, W. Curtis Porter, and then, of course, Barton Stone. And the Cambridge Readers got a great article there. And then from not so long ago, here's Wallace, Foy Wallace, Guy in Woods. He has a great article at the end of the back of the book of Franklin Camp. Franklin Camp's Alabama boy, you all know. Okay, I think that's a great read. If you haven't read that and you're a little bit confused on the Holy Spirit issue, he may not got everything right, but I tell you what, he is, <laughs> he is in the bullseye and a lot of us are dancing around it. And then there's uh, Robert Taylor. And then, of course, uh, Roy Lanier. And, oh, and Franklin Camp at the end of that. All right. Well, I, I, I thought I had the slide in here. I'll just tell you right now. This is, uh, if you were to, to debate a large religious movement today, not to be named, but usually call themselves Roman Catholics, they would say to you that inspiration continues today. And they'd say, how can you prove otherwise? Why would you prove otherwise? If that's the way God worked in the first century, why isn't he working that way today? That's what the succession of the Pope is all about. That's what Mormonism, by the way, is all about. It's about continuing inspiration that the record and canon was never closed out once for all and delivered to the saints. So how would you argue with these individuals? Because you know where they're going to go? They're going to go to John 14, 26. And when they go there, we're going to have a lot of brothers sometimes just stammering around going, well, yeah, I, well, sure, I think that applies today. And then they're, they're going to just eat us alive. 
But back in the day, we couldn't afford to make those kind of mistakes. And that's why we have our doctrine the way it is. That's why we say we speak where the Bible speaks. We're silent where the Bible's silent. In John 14, 26, But the Comforter, even the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said unto you. If you don't recognize direct operation there and it's a miraculous operation, what in the world? Right? That is, that's direct, miraculous operation. You're going to have a perfect memory and he's going to bring to their remembrance everything. He even said, you're not even ready to hear everything I've got to say now, but you will be. Why? Acts 1 and 8, he says, you're going to receive power from on high. You're going to be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and then Samaria and then the othermost part of the world. And then, well, that's exactly what happened. In Acts chapter 10, he takes that witness, the power of the Holy Spirit, and then they begin and they turn the world upside down. And he says, and we are witnesses in Acts chapter 5 and 32. We are witnesses and so is the Holy Spirit who he, who he gave to them that believe on him. And we'll talk about that in a second as well. But we have to recognize in John 14, 15 and 16, who's speaking and who's the audience? The audience, my friends, are 12. Okay, and that's right. And so, I mean, if, let's put it this way. Let's say you're trying to argue about the authority of the apostles. Because I've had arguments with people that said, well, if it's not in the red letters, I'm, <laughs> I don't care. I've had people tell me that. Hey, Scott, I get what you're saying, but that's not in the red letters. What are they saying? They're saying if Jesus didn't say it, that's, that's just other people. They kind of took off and just, you know, they kind of started making a mess of it. And we can see that as history goes on. They make a pretty good argument for it. But what are you going to say? You're going to say, look, Jesus didn't even teach him all things right there in his three-year ministry. No, he did not. He says, you can't even bear th all things right now. But there's a day coming when you will. And he says, you're going to have perfect memory. You're going to have perfect recall. And all the things that I told you are going to come to your memory. In other words... Direct operation, perfect recall, the apostles, the office of apostleship is special. It's even more special than others that are going to have miraculous things happening like in Mark 16 through 20, right? He that believe in this baptized should be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. And in my name shall they cast out demons. And they shall speak with new tongues. They'll take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall no wise hurt them. And they will lay their hands on the sick, and they shall be well. They shall be healed. And after Jesus had said these things, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they, the apostles, went everywhere preaching, and the Lord working with them, confirming the word by the signs that followed. They had the office of apostleship, which was special. So I'll bring in this right here just to let you know. This is one of those passages now that's not in 14, 15, and 16. But I'm telling you, it is, is, is exactly right in line with John 14, 15, and 16 in the office of apostleship. Jesus is talking to his chosen here. And he says, yea, before governors and kings, you should be brought for my sake, for a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, be not anxious how you should speak. I had my chaplain out at OTS tell me that was applying to us today. I just, I don't understand that. We had a preacher in the Brotherhood in Arkansas recently. He said, no, I believe that too. He says, in fact, I don't even study for my sermons anymore. I rely on the Holy Spirit to just inspire me and tell me what to say. People, we're, <laughs> we're in dangerous ground. We're in dangerous ground because we have long since left the foundation that we grew on, that we carved a name for ourselves. 
This passage right here does not speak to you. It's not talking about that. It's talking about the apostleship and the office of apostleship. Matthew 18 and 18. I like this one, too. We know what Matthew 16 and 18 says, right? And, of course, we're going to be in some some down the street are going to say, well, that uh, there it is. Peter's the first pope. He gave him the authority to open the with the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What do you say in Matthew 18, 18? He's not even talking to just Peter there, does he? He doesn't name him, but he's talking to all of them. Again, what is this? The office of apostleship. It's authority. He's given special authority to his apostles that would stop and die with the apostles. But the word and the truth that they confirmed would live on. And as we mentioned before, a court case never stops, does it? The court case, the witnesses could be long dead. Right? And the court case we used was 1962, Engel versus Vitell. No per- public prayer in school. We're living under that now, right? Oh, you're living under the consequences of something. Those people are the judge that sat on that court case is long dead. And so are all the witnesses and the lawyers that argued it. But the confirmation or what happened lives on. Same with the confirmation in John 20. Other things he did in the presence of his disciples that he's not listed here. But these things are written that you may believe. Believe in you may have power in his name. Life everlasting. Not just Peter like the Catholic Church changed in Matthew 18, 18. Here's John 15, 26. Okay, I say John 15. What do you think in your mind? Who's talking? Jesus, who's he talking to? The 12, the 12 apostles. He makes a promise to them. He says, when the comforters come, whom I will send to you. That's a very specific you. That includes 12. From the Father, even the spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall bear witness of me. We've heard that. People saying that the Holy Spirit's bearing witness today. How's he bear witness? That's interesting because in Hebrews 2 and 4 and the rest of the apostolic record, we know how he bear witness and we don't see that going on today. Right? And God bearing witness with him, both with wonders, signs, wonders, manifold powers and gifts of the Holy Spirit. According to his will. Hebrews 2 and 4. That's exactly how the Holy Spirit confirmed the word by the signs that followed in Mark 16 and 20. Look at me, I'm a PowerPoint ranger. I can't even get the same verse out of there. All right. Mark 16, 20. So there it is. I just, I just quoted that one too. But that's it. That's a parallel passage, people. That's exactly what's happening. He's telling you this is what's going to happen. You know, try to understand what this was like. If you're baptized in Jerusalem and you leave and you go into Libya, what is, what, how is your faith going to continue? You think you're going to read your Bible every day? There was none. How are you going to teach your neighbor? The only thing you heard was Peter's sermon. You go, well, that's great. That's a good starting point. But what about any other question that comes up? People were not that with God's church wasn't going to rely on those things. It wasn't going to rely on faulty memory. It wasn't going to rely on your wisdom or your your pride getting in the way of teaching something that you think, well, you know, Peter said this, but this guy doesn't know any different. I'm going to say this. (laughs) That's not the way the church grew. God didn't leave it that way. That's why we have the, that's why I don't think we have any missing books out of the canon of the Bible either. I think of God that's all powerful, all loving, his providential care and his power is able to give us exactly what we need. And that's what he told us in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Why would he fail? I don't understand that. I heard a bunch of Mormons sitting around the table one time and I was listening in and they, and they said the they, first 20 minutes of their program was to disparage the Bible because the devil had gotten a hold of it and taken out the most precious promising passages. That's the way the language they use. And they'll tell you that. Why'd they have to do that? So that you would know that there was another revelation of Jesus Christ, that that canon was not closed out. I deny it all completely. 
And I say that the God of heaven was going to do that. He wasn't going to make a mistake. He wasn't going to have his words watered down and, and that Satan come in. And that's what Muhammad claimed as well, right? There'll be a fatwa put out on me because they don't like to talk about this. But the, remember, the Quran has changed. Why did it change? Because it was inconsistent. It was incongruent. And when they found that out, he said, his friend came to him and he said, this doesn't even make sense. You said this over here in this surah because he's just kind of rambling on. There's no story there. It's just, it's just philosophical sayings. And he said, oh, well, you know what? I was under the influence of Satan. Take those out. Those are satanic passages. True. Some of you know. The Bible's not that way. There's no way Satan was going to overcome the spirit. No way. And there it is, confirming the word by the signs that follow. It's a pattern that you should see and understand so that a lot of these texts, like Acts 5 and 32, you look at that. You can believe what you want on it. I'm, I'm not saying I'm, you know, I've got, everybody's going to anathema if they don't believe me. But I'm just telling you, I think when you start putting this stuff together, it makes all the sense in the world. Instead of picking one passage out and another, and then, well, I'm not sure what that talks to. It's the same thing he's talking about. Remember what we talked about, too. This throws them off. It says, who God hath given to them that obey him. You say, well, what, haven't, we give, haven't we obeyed him? So isn't he talking about us there? Well, what did he say in Mark 16 and 17? And these signs shall follow them that believe. Do you believe? Yeah, but you can't do those signs. Right? There's another contextual understanding and constraint on who he's talking to. Just like he said, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Not too many people are baptized with the Holy Spirit fire, but how many people was he talking to? He's probably talking to multitudes. And, and the promise is, is several times, but you have to have a contextual understanding. We only know about, what, 14 in a household or whatever. All right. Look at me. I've got slides all over the place. Who knows what's going to pop up? Whoop, going backwards. No wonder. All right, let's try this. Uh, John 16, here's another one, okay? So John 16, I say that, you should think, oh, 14, 15, 16. You know 17 is the prayer to God on behalf of the apostles. And then he's talking here to his apostles, to his chosen. He says, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he shall guide you unto all the truth. So that's how you argue the, the apostleship, the apostolic doctrine. That's when he says, well, that words aren't in red. Say, well... <laughs> Listen, for one thing, the same people that wrote down the words in red wrote down these other words as well. Right? I mean, it's the same, it's the same pen, it's the, same, it's the same gospels. And then we're told here, they're going to have all truth. All truth. For he shall not speak from himself, but what things soever he shall hear. These shall he speak. So the Holy Spirit has a role to play. He's not even, he's not even originating it, the truth right there. He's saying what he hears. Isn't that amazing? Think about the Holy Spirit and the Lord having different roles, just like, just like Jesus said about himself, right, in John 12, 44. I'm not speaking the things from, my, from myself. I speak the things that are commanded to me. And the things that he commands me, God commands me, those are the things that I speak. And was Jesus anointed with the Holy Spirit to have power? Yes, he was. Isn't that interesting? God himself anointed himself with the Holy Spirit to have power. That's what we're told in Acts. I think I have that in here somewhere. So how would one argue today the completed and definitive inspired word once delivered? I mean, if you had to, you're going to end up getting a different position than thinking all these things apply today because they're going to, at least the Pentecostals are very consistent, right? They're going to take all this out of context, but they're going to say, no, that's what it's talking about. And then they're going to take it to a logical conclusion about signs and wonders. How would affirm the apostleship and the infallibility of the apostles' doctrine? 
You know, just like when uh, Purcell and Campbell debate of the uh, Catholics or, or Wall, was that Wallace? Wallace and Purcell, I can't remember, Bob. But anyway, that was a great Catholic debate, and that is, it dances all over these scriptures because that's, and you have to take a stand on it. If you pull them out of the context, then you end up in, a, in kind of never-never land. How would one go about attesting to a closed-out canon with no further need of another gospel of Jesus Christ? That's what you'd hear if you're, say, down in Mesa, Arizona. All right, could one claim apostleship today? And what would preclude them from that? So we have to be somewhat constrained knowing who he's talking to and when that era closed out instead of kind of willy-nilly saying, well, all this applies to us today. Well, no, it doesn't. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith and receive ye the Holy Spirit. A lot of people, that's kind of difficult to understand, isn't it? When Jesus appears after his resurrection, he breathes on them and says, receive ye the Holy Spirit. But what does he say in the next verse? He's giving them authority. He reiterates what he said in Matthew 18 and 18. That's what he's doing. He's giving them a special apostolic authority. Matthew 16 and 19, same thing, authority there. I tell you what, since we are just about out of time, let me just skim through. I'm going to, here's the anointing that you'll know all things and the anointing is going to teach them. Need no one to teach them, the anointing is going to teach them. I think that's taken out of context. And then in Acts 10, that's where we're told that Jesus had the anointing from the above. I'm going to get to John's part here. He's going to really get on to me. This is John's slides, by the way. That's all introduction to John. So John's going to come back and say, did you, did you cover this? So what does a person mean when he says the Holy Spirit is leading him in Romans 8 and 14? Because that's where a lot of your minds are, right? There you say, well, yeah, but Scott, what about Romans 8 and 14? Well, remember what I said before in John 60, 63, when Jesus said, the flesh profiteth nothing. It's the spirit that giveth life. The words which I speak, they are spirit and are life. In other words, in Romans and in Galatians as well, when he says you're led by the Spirit, what's the only other alternative? You're led by what? The flesh. Yeah, so that's the contrast, right? It's throughout the Roman letter and it's also in Galatians. You're either, you're led by the Spirit, Scott, or you're led by the flesh. You take your choice. So I'm going to take choice A, door A. I'm led by the Spirit. And that doesn't negate all of those debate statements and what was happening, that the Spirit leads through the word of God, and that's the influence. And, of course, Jesus said his words are what? Spirit. That's right. Because that's what you'd have to ask yourself. Where does your Bible fit in? Is it flesh? Yeah. How dare I say that, right? Your Bible's not flesh. So it's, it's over on the spiritual side, right? I mean, in other words, we can make it complicated, but it's really not. You have that choice. Miraculous leading in the Spirit, direct operation, Jesus, Matthew 4, 1. What's the passage there talking about? Spirit leads him into the wilderness, right, to be tempted. Okay, so the Spirit leads him, guides him into the wilderness to be tempted. Philip, Acts 8 and 26 through 39. You know what? Let's read this one. This one's really good. We may have some visitors here. This is, gonna, this is a really important passage, whether we get off on anything else or not. Let's go to Acts 8, 26. I want you to see this, and I know you all, you, you all sitting here, the faces that I recognize know this, but I just want everybody to see this. See, there's an angel there in Acts, Acts chapter 8. It says, the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise. Notice the angel speaking to him. Arise, go towards the south into the way that goes to Jerusalem and to Gaza. The same as desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of greater authority under Candace, queen of Ethiopians, who was over all her treasure, who had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was returning and sitting in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Verse 29 said, And the Spirit said 
unto Philip, go near and join thyself to this chariot. Does that sound like a burning in his bosom? Does that sound like some kind of better felt than told experience? Is that just kind of a nudging? Somebody kicked me in my bed last night. That's why I'm preaching. I had the call. Somebody kicked. I, I heard that. I had a Baptist preacher tell me that. I got kicked out of bed one night. I've been preaching ever since. I was like, wow, maybe you should have been a doctor. But anyway, he says, now the Spirit said to Philip. Okay, so the Spirit is speaking words, and Philip goes and runs. Now, he's had an angel. He's had a spirit. And now he goes up, and he joins himself to this chariot, and, he, and then Philip is talking to the Ethiopian eunuch. And what happens after that during the conversion? It's all the truth. Obedience to the truth. Unto unfeigned love of the brethren, love one another from the heart for Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. The word of God. Acts 11 and 14. What does Peter say in there? He goes, I know you're mad at me because I went into the house of the Gentiles, but this is what Cornelius told me. That an angel came to him and he said, somebody's down there in Joppa, he's going to come up here and he's going to speak unto them what? Words by which thou shalt be saved, thou and all thy household. Wow, they had all kinds. They had angels, they had spirit, they had speaking in tongues, they had the pouring out of the spirit. They had all these amazing things. And Cornelius said, you're going to speak to me words by which I'll be saved. Does that not go along with 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 through 13? And he says, that's, that's the way the Spirit led. That's the way the Spirit inspired. That's what Paul said. He said that those the Spirit had revealed all those things to him. Because the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of man. All right, the Spirit revealed them to Paul in words, speaking spiritual words, verse 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Oh, saved by the bell. Right when you're picking up stones and opening the city gates. Okay, so we're going to tell, we're going to tell John we got to slide two anyway. So, there's, <laughs> so he's, he, can, he can clean this mess up anyway. Hey, appreciate your time. Uh, thanks so much for listening.